Gresham College presents The Lives of Stars by Professor Carolyn Crawford, Gresham Professor of Astronomy. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Oh, great. <laughs> Made me feel like a teacher when you respond like that. Anyway, today's talk is about the most easily observable objects in the night sky. In other words, the stars. And also easily observable in the day, given that uh, the nearest example of a star, of course, is our sun. And all the stars you see in the night skies are suns just like our own. And they're all the same entity in the sense that they are enormous spheres of burning gas, producing heat, producing light. And as you see, their, their intrinsic properties differ a lot. They, they differ in size and mass and temperature. But they're all the same basic thing. An object is a star while it's producing that energy to counteract gravity. Because the whole of a star's life is a battle against gravity. The gravity of the mass of the star wants to squeeze it. It wants to collapse it in. And the star resists that by producing energy and an outwards pressure at its core. In this case, from nuclear fusion, it's burning elements to heavier elements. But as long as it can produce that fuel in the core, it can withstand the collapse of gravity. And for that time, it's known as a star. But stars have lives. They do change. Obviously, on timescales much greater than human lifetimes, so to us they seem eternal and everlasting. But nonetheless, even now, stars are being born throughout the galaxy. Stars are dying throughout the galaxy and through other galaxies as well. So stars do have lives. And galaxies are at sort of dynamic places. Things are changing all the time in terms of these populations of stars. But if we want to start off with some basic observations, you'd be surprised how much you can learn about stars just from fundamental observations you, you can get with your unaided eye. For example, the start one that everybody notices that not all stars are the same brightness. Now, obviously, that's related to their distance away from us, and I'll come back to that. But you still have variation in brightness of stars. Not just that, they're not... Uh, uniformly distributed across the sky. They make patterns, there are clumps, they're fairly randomly distributed. And also, stars are different colours from each other. We know the sun, especially when you observe it from not within our atmosphere, but out in space, it's a sort of yellowy-white colour. But there are blue stars out there, gold-red stars, brown stars. You also have very blue-white stars. You can't see this so well with your unaided eye. If you're familiar with the constellation of Orion... Your best bet for seeing an orangey-red star is Betelgeuse at its top shoulder. And you could compare that with Rigel down at his knee. And the two stars are very, very different colours. Rigel's the blue-white, Betelgeuse is that orangey-red. In general, you have to rely on images, digital images perhaps like this, because the colours are quite subtle and you don't get enough light from a star to, for it to sort of fire the visual receptors in your eye. But a lot of the pictures, it becomes apparent that these colours are very, very different from each other. So just these basic observations, as I'll show you, allow us to infer a lot of properties, fundamental properties about stars. And what we discover is that our sun... It's a fairly average and quite dull star. I mean, that's actually a good thing, but it's very kind of average, and there are many more extremes of behaviour out there. So, for example, stars vary in brightness. They can be one ten-thousandth the brightness of our sun, up to a million times more luminous. In terms of temperature, 
our sun is about, and I'm talking surface temperature, the bit of the star you actually see and we get the light from. In our sun, it's about 5,600 degrees on the surface, but they range from cool, dim stars that are about 3,000 degrees to hot blue stars that are about 30,000 degrees. Sizes also vary enormously. Our sun's about 1.4 million kilometres in diameter. You can go down to, uh, admittedly, a very extreme star called a neutron star that's only 10 kilometres in diameter. But you can also go up to stars that are of the order of 2 billion kilometres across. That's about 1,400 times wider than the sun. Enormous objects. Masses vary. There's a limit to, you know, the, the smallest mass you can get is about a tenth that of the sun. After, you know, for various reasons, it doesn't become a star unless it gets over that threshold. And similarly, stars only survive up to about a mass of about 100 times the sun. So there's quite a narrow mass range. And in terms of ages, some stars are just being born. They're less than a million years old. Others have existed for almost as long as the universe has existed. So you're looking at ages of 11 to 12 billion years old. And chemical composition... Some stars are primordial, mainly hydrogen and helium. Some have heavier elements mixed in with that. So again, there's a slight difference in composition. And finally, also environment. Our sun is relatively unusual in being quite so isolated as it is. Many other stars are distributed differently, and that's to do with their formation as well. Some form binary systems where one star goes around the other, And many of the stars we see in the night sky are binary systems. Some are even quadruple or sextuplet systems. There are many combinations of tiny groups of stars. Moving on up the scale, you can also have what we call open clusters. So these are loose clusters of stars. There's a nice example here where you have perhaps a few tens to maybe a hundred stars that are all, as you'll discover, about the same age, about the same composition, and they just live out their lives within this group. And then you can get the intense swarms of what's known as a globular cluster, where you have hundreds of thousands of stars all living their lives alongside. And in these kind of environments, some of the processes of stellar development I'm going to be talking about can be a little bit accelerated. <clears throat> so you see there's this, this huge range of properties. So let's just start off with what you can observe and what you can infer from what you observe and where that takes us. Because all of these features reveal fundamental properties about those stars, which then dictate that they go on and live very different lives. So to start with, the brightness of stars. Now, I know that these stars that form up the the plough are all about 100 light years away. They happen to be bright because they're relatively nearby. I realise 100 light years may not sound nearby, but in terms of our galaxy it is. And a lot of the other stars you see in the background are fainter because they're further away. So you have this struggle. You can see a variation of brightness. And if you know the distance to the star, you can work out intrinsically how luminous the star is. And of course, it drops off as the square of the distance. If you have the light from a star, it gets all that light emitted from the surface of the star, it gets diluted over increasingly large spheres of space. So, for example, the luminosity of the star is given out through an area of 4 pi, say, d squared at, at um, this particular distance. But if you move out twice as far in distance to, to twice the distance, the whole area of the sphere that light is spread out with has gone up by a factor of four. 
If you move out to three times further, the area's gone up by a factor of nine. So it drops off pretty rapidly. But if you can work out through various means, and that's going to be my talk in April where we talk about distances to stars. So I'm going to put it on one side for the minute. But if you know the distance to the star, the flux is what you measure of the brightness of the star. You can infer its intrinsic luminosity. So different stars, let's say you can do that and you can work out the different brightnesses, the real brightnesses of stars. When this was originally done, we didn't have telescopes, we didn't have cameras, we didn't have photographs. And astronomers use this very archaic scale. So if any of you are amateur astronomers or have read anything about amateur astronomy, you see we talk about brightnesses in terms of magnitudes. And it's worth just telling you a bit about magnitudes. Because this was developed in the 2nd century BC by this Greek chap, Hipparchus. And he put the, the most luminous stars, the brightest star in the night sky, he said they were first magnitude. And then the very faintest ones he could see were sixth magnitude. And then he spaced all the other stars in between according to their brightness. So you just have a ranking between the brightest and the faintest stars you can see with the unaided eye. So that's a good system, but it's limited to what he at the time could see with his eye. We still use this system, but of course because of that very archaic start, is developed to something that's quite a little bit cumbersome and can be a little bit confusing to begin with. So, for example, if you lose binoculars and you have a clear night, you could probably go down to a magnitude 10. When this um, scale was started, he decided a certain star was this first magnitude, the brightest star. Well, actually, there are other stars that are brighter. To, to include those in the scale, you have to go through zero and up to negative magnitudes. So, for example, Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, is minus one in magnitude. If you want to look at Jupiter in the very bright and light sky at the minute, that's minus two. And, of course, if you want to go up to the moon and the sun, they kind of weigh off the scale. Similarly, fainter objects that we now see with very powerful telescopes, we talk about going to a magnitude of 27, 20, 25, up to 30. So you have a very strange scale in that it goes the wrong way around. Greater magnitude means fainter, negative magnitude means bright. And the other thing is it's an example of a logarithmic scale. The visual receptors in your eyes don't work linearly. So say difference between one magnitude and another magnitude is a drop in, in flux of about a factor of two and a half. There's a, a, an object that's five magnitudes fainter. It's 100 magnitudes. I'm sorry, it's 100 times less flux. So it's a logarithmic scale. But we still, despite the fact that this dates from Greek times, this is the scale that all astronomers use to refer to the brightness of objects. But it's still an observed brightness, and so we need to change it all to something called apparent magnitude, which is where you basically say how bright, what magnitude that star would be if you put it at a distance of, not entirely, an arbitrary distance of 32.6 light years. And at that point, you've got all your stars. And so we turn it into, again, an intrinsic, a real luminosity. So we can measure brightness. We know how bright the stars are. This is complicated a bit by the fact I've just told you they're different colours. And the colour of a star is related to its temperature. The colour of a star radiates its, most, its light most strongly and depends on its temperature because it's uh, basically thermal emission. It's due to the heat of the body. And if you distribute the colours that come off from bodies at different temperatures, it follows what's known as a black body spectrum. So here, for example, this is a spectrum. So you've got the colour, if you like, wavelength of the light given off by the body against the brightness. And you can see you have this sort of regular family of curves. And you see where the peak goes. 
So here it's very blue for a very hot object. It moves into the more visible for a cooler object and a very, uh, very cold object in terms of stars. 3,000 degrees, the peaks in the red. And so you don't just quote a magnitude. You have to say what colour that magnitude is measured in. So it starts to get more complicated already. So very hot blue stars you know, we can say the temperature is about 12,000 degrees. Stars like the sun, again, 6,000. They peak in the visible spectrum. Cold, dim, red stars peak perhaps just in more towards the, far infra- the near infrared. But this allows us to measure the temperature. If you look at two bands in the visible, you take pictures and you say, OK, I'm going to compare the light in a star maybe at this kind of blue band and maybe this kind of yellow band, You can see there's a big difference from there to there. The ratio of those two is very different from, say, the ratio of these. There's a big change between them. Here there's a small change, and here the change goes the other way. So if you just have the the brightness of the star in two different colour bands, you have a measure of its temperature. So the colour gives you the temperature. Um, If you ever see anything about colour index, all it means is the ratio, if you like, between the colours in two different bands. This is, say, between 400 nanometers to about 500 nanometers. And you can see hot blue things versus red things. You can discriminate colour, therefore you can discriminate um, the temperature. So here you have fundamental properties of star, its luminosity and its temperature just from the simplest observations, from just taking images of the night sky, or originally, again, from just naked eye observations. So where does that get you? You've got two things that you can measure, but after that, you have to start being a bit cleverer. But what you can get from those two points is you can get a measure of the size of the star. Now, the size of a star is very difficult to determine. They're all a long way away. Nearly all of them, even through the biggest telescopes, appear as point sources of light. There are a few exceptions. Here's a picture of Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse, you can resolve the disk of the star. And I'll talk about what all this, the rest of this governs is in a minute. But you can get the size of the star just because it is a phenomenally big star. And it's relatively close, at only 650 light years away from us. So fortuitously, we can actually see the surface of Betelgeuse. We can even resolve structures on the surface, you know, like star spots. But Betelgeuse is very much the exception. Even with the most powerful telescopes, nearly all the other stars appear as point sources of light. So to get around this, you use the luminosity and the temperature. So the luminosity, if you plot that the... the, Well, if you look at the equation that gives you that black body spectrum, you find it's this. Now, I don't mean to frighten anybody who doesn't like equations. It's very simple... 4 pi r squared is the surface area of a sphere. So that's the surface area of the star. And it radiates at this temperature T to give off this luminosity L. So it's effectively, you know, what temperature this area is radiating at. Related by sigma is just a constant here. That gives you the intrinsic luminosity of the star. So I've already told you from the brightness and the colour, we can measure the luminosity and the temperature. We know sigma, that's just a constant. Therefore, for every luminosity and temperature, you have a unique radius for that star. And so immediately you know the sizes of stars from these two observations. And the way it goes, if you look at the proportionality, if luminosity was fixed, if you increase the temperature then to keep luminosity constant, the radius has to decrease. So hotter stars are smaller. 
Similarly, you could say, well, okay, let's keep the temperature fixed and look at the way luminosity and radius vary. Well, the more luminous a star and it's got fixed temperature, it has to be radiating out through a bigger radius. And so more luminous stars are larger. And from that, you get three fundamental properties, luminosity, temperature, and its size. So where does this take us? If we want to compare stars, and obviously we want to go and do that and see how they live out different lives, maybe you want to compare those intrinsic properties. And we do this in what's known as the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram after a couple of, um, couple of astronomers who first thought through this process. And there are two versions of this. We've just lost it slightly off the end here, but this is basically temperature versus luminosity. So you can see these plots either in terms of colour versus magnitude, which are the things you observe, or when they've been translated to the real properties of the stars. In other words, the temperature versus the luminosity. And if you just plot loads of stars, observations of all stars, into this diagram, their luminosity, temperature, and remember for every one there's a unique radius, you find they're not scattered throughout the plot, but they concentrate in very different and very specific areas of this plot. And this is telling us something about what stars do during their lives. So, for example, 90% of stars fall on what's known as the main sequence, which goes from hot blue stars down to cool red dim stars. And then perhaps there are other smatterings out to this side and this side off to the right and down here. Now, what these regions are telling us, they're telling us where stars spend most of their lives. Okay, you can't watch an individual star. Their lifetimes are much longer than human lifetimes. You don't watch it change either in its luminosity or its temperature or any of these properties because it's happening on much longer timescales than, than we can see. However, if you look at a whole ensemble of stars, where most of them congregate, although they kind of where they have the properties, shows you that's where they spend most of their lives. Regions that are sparsely populated, so like the gaps here or here, are where they move through those regions, or they only, if they ever have that combination of luminosity and temperature, it's only for a very short while. And so sparser regions out here, they don't tend to spend so much of their lives, but it's still a good fraction of their life. So again, how this is populated tells us where the relative length of their lifetime in these different areas. And it also tells us, remember, about the sizes of the stars. And this is what gives the name to different kinds of stars. So remember we were doing with that luminosity-temperature relation, we can apply it to here. So remember, if we fix a luminosity, a hotter star is smaller than a cooler star. Or if we do it the other way around, if you fix a temperature, the more luminous star up here is larger than the less luminous and so that is immediately telling you you have a gradation that these are small stars and these are big stars. And so this lends other names that you may have heard to stars. You have supergiants, the very biggest. You have giant stars. And in the opposite end, you have things called white dwarfs. They're hot and they're small. And these are all key periods within a star's life, especially a star like our sun. And to, when I'm talking about giant supergiant, let's just show how big these are. This is a, a lovely movie that goes around on YouTube. We're just starting off from the moon and working up in size through the planets. Um, so you've got the four rocky planets. And then, of course, it's a big step to the gas giants of our solar system. You know, remember, you could fit 1,300 Earths inside, inside Jupiter, the biggest planet. 
So that's the relative scale of those two. But you would still need a thousand Jupiters to fit inside the sun. And I'm telling you, the sun is a very average kind of star. So when I'm talking about giant stars, you're looking at things that are 10 to 100 times wider than the sun. But they aren't the biggest stars. You get supergiants, and now we have a class called hypergiants, where you're looking up to 1,000 times the diameter of the sun. And this is just progressing on up, and we're moving up to the largest known star. It could be that there's one even bigger, but this is the largest one we know about, and it's called VY Canis Majoris, and it's going to be the next star. And it's a red hypergiant. And then we'll just zoom back, and you'll see the size of Earth in comparison to this star. You know it's going to be small. Yeah. I bet you, it's even a challenge to see that right from the back. So, I mean, it just gives you an idea that when we're calling them supergiant and giant, they really are massive. You think talking things two billion kilometres across. So we've got colour, we've got size, we've got temperature. Now we've got to get a bit crafty. Another key parameter about a star, you know, a fundamental property, is its mass. And a mass is something that's difficult to measure. You don't go out and just observe the mass of a star. You can observe its gravitational attraction, and that's when it's useful if you've got stars in a binary system. You can see the gravitational effect of one on the other, and you can start to measure masses of different kinds of stars. And so you have to get the mass by indirect means. But if you put that as a property on top of this uh, colour magnitude diagram, you find there's a very clear correlation of mass with this main sequence. If I just put the masses on, you find the most massive stars here are the hot blue ones. The sun is about here, midway down the main sequence, and the cool red stars go down to about a tenth of the solar mass. Now, the reason you've got these kind of boundaries of a tenth to a hundred times the solar mass are because if it's very tiny, you don't, ha you don't have enough gravitational compression to squeeze the centre of the star to temperatures where you can actually initiate nuclear fusion. So below that, you get objects called brown dwarfs, which sit between Jupiters and, and you know, cool, dim stars. And you haven't got nuclear emission, so it's not uh, nuclear fusion, so it's not quite a star, it's not quite a planet. Above a tenth solar mass, you get enough temperature in the core that you've got nuclear fusion, and then it behaves like a star. But at the other end of the scale, you can't just have an infinitely big or infinitely massive star because stars produce light and light has pressure. And if you have a 100 solar mass star, you can see it's going to be very hot. It's going to be very luminous, just continuing this trend. And the light is going to, there's going to be so much pressure from that light that it ends up pulling the star apart. So it's that difficult balance between too much light at the centre versus the gravity. And we reckon above 100, 120 solar masses, stars are not stable. They can't exist at those masses. So generally, we go from a tenth to 100 solar masses. And the line follows the line of the main sequence. This makes sense. If you have a very massive star, it's got more mass, it's got more gravity squeezing on it. It has to produce more energy at its core. And it has to produce this energy faster. So it burns hotter. It burns brighter because it's producing more energy. And it has to produce, you know, even though it's a very massive star to begin with, it has to produce so much energy that it goes through its fuel much quicker. So those tend to be the short-lived stars. If you have a cool, dim star, it doesn't have so much mass. It doesn't have to go through its fuel at such a prodigious rate. And it, 
burns for a lot longer. So not only do you get this distribution of mass down the main sequence, you get a distribution of lifetimes. So a star like our sun can last about 10, 15 billion years. The very hot, massive stars have lifetimes of tens of millions of years. And even cooler stars maybe are the uh, much older systems. So again, mass is what determines where a star is in the main sequence. And mass is something that is virtually unchanged through most of the lifetime of a star. I mean, forget stellar winds, forget you know, the final throws where it maybe will lose mass very rapidly. For most of the lifetime of a star, it's got the same mass. So a star doesn't move up and down the sequence, it's just a distribution of behaviour. And the key thing that you know, determines where a star is on that is its mass. Okay, so to the story of stars. Now, I told you they're being born all over the place and they are born from the reservoir of material that is our interstellar medium. And there's a lot of matter out there. The space between the stars is not completely empty. It's filled with gas, it's filled with atoms, it's filled with ionised atoms, it's got um, particle, those small solid particles of dust that I talked about in my first year's lecture here. And all of this is mixed together. And within the interstellar medium, you've got different phases. So, for example, in the space between the stars, there's a lot of hot gas. This is an ionised plasma. It's so hot. But it's very sparse. It's very diffuse. It's not very dense. And so even though it occupies a lot of the volume, there isn't so much mass in it. And then embedded within that, you've got cooler clouds, denser clouds. Now, these aren't so big, but they tend because they're denser, they tend to carry a lot of the mass. But they're cold. You can't see them unless you're looking in radio wave bands. They're giving off radio emission. You might see them if they happen to be in proximity to one of these bright blue stars. They can ionise the gas atoms and make them appear as these pink nebulae that accompany the blue stars. So in terms of... The reservoir, it's the cold, denser regions that happen to be the best places for star formation. And in particular, with embedded within all this complex of very sort of hot gas and cooler gas, there's the ones that almost appear opaque. It's structures like this. If I just zoom in on some of these... These are regions where the stuff is so condensed... I mean, obviously, nowhere near as condensed as the air you're breathing now. This is condensed for the interstellar medium... Okay. But it's still the densest region of the interstellar medium. You've got so much dust there that they begin to look opaque. And these are very cold clouds. They're small clouds. And these are the regions where star formation starts happening, especially as they tend to get shredded by the light of surrounding stars and they break apart into these small cocoons that will go on and form the stars. I would just say I always love this particular cloud. I was doing a particularly rude hand gesture. <laughs> So one of these little cocoons starts to collapse down. Maybe it's, it's, it's more dense than a region, so it's got more gravity. Gravity pulls things together. You've got gravitational contraction, conservation of energy within the cloud. If things lose gravitational potential energy as they fall in, their energy goes into heat. And so you've got accumulation of stuff towards the centre of the cloud or a dense region in the cloud, and then it heats up. And at a point it reaches 15, 18 million degrees, that's when nuclear fusion begins, and you switch on your protostar. 
I mean, of course, it's nowhere near that simple. It goes through phases where it collapses and then it becomes much denser. The dust becomes more opaque. It doesn't let the heat of the star out. And so the whole cloud heats up and you have to wait till the dust is kind of zapped away before radiation can escape and it can carry on collapsing. So it's going to go in fits and starts. It's not just a quick straight whoomph down to a star. It's, a, it's an elongated process that takes a while to happen. And also you've got things like rotation, you've got magnetic fields in the cloud, which can add to uh, inhibit the star formation. But at the simplest level, you've got gravitational contraction leading to heating at the core, and you end up with a protostar that's still surrounded by a disk of matter. And the whole you know, time for a star to collapse down to protostar does depend a bit, again, on the mass of the star, It's very difficult to tell, of course, because all of this is hidden. It's not something we can readily observe and map out. This is what we think happens, is that if you've got a star like our sun, it probably takes 10 million years to go from a clump down to a star. But if you've got something that's like, you know, 15, 20 times more massive, maybe it just takes a couple of hundred thousand years to reach to that stage. And there are interesting things that happen. I've talked about protoplanetary disks before, the material that forms a torus around the star, eventually goes on to form a planetary system. Um, We see some of these in nearby star formation regions, such as Orion's nebula. And this is just an artist's impression, where you've got the protostar in the middle, surrounded by this big, opaque torus of material. But this also funnels some of the material that flows from the star. And that protostar, in its very early phases, produces twin jets that come out of the rotational axis. And they blast out probably for a couple of light years into space. Now, again, this is a a very short-lived period, you know, maybe a few tens of thousands of the protostar's life. And it's part of this adjustment of working out how much energy it needs to produce at the core to counteract gravity. It's an unstable situation. And one of the net things is that you have these twin flows of gas. And they're coming up out at probably sort of tens of thousands, well, say hundreds of kilometres per second. And when you look at them, they're funneled along the rotational axis. And they indicate that even though you don't see the protostar, there's something really exciting going on in that cloud. So, for example, here you've got the twin jets. And the protostar responsible is buried deep in that cloud. There's another one down here. Uh, I love this particular picture you see these long thin jets and again what's happening the protostar is all enveloped in this cloud we only know what's going on because of these jets and this is something we do see change in human lifetimes the star protostar is buried deep within a kind of shell of material here it's just lighting up this area and then you've got this jet going out and where it impacts on the surrounding interstellar medium you get this kind of knot of glowing gas and these are called herbic harrow objects they're quite rare because it is such a short transient part of a star's life but they're very spectacular and then of course the protostar gradually gets rid of this disk material either it settles down to planets and some of it is blasted off out into space from the winds and from the radiation from the star and the star is exposed so you have a point we where it'll start off somewhere around here on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, your colour magnitude diagram, and it'll follow these tracks, which eventually land it right on the ma- right part of the main sequence for its particular mass. And then it spends most of its lifetime as a star, a recognisable star like our sun on this main sequence. It's worth just saying why star formation is still happening all around us. I've told you it comes from gravitational collapse of 
um, a gas cloud. And whether or not a gas cloud collapses depends on a couple of subtle things. It's very easy to see that if you have a couple of slight over-densities, you know, imagine a bit, one of those sort of cocoons. You've got a, ever such a slight fluctuation of density there compared to there. This has got slightly more self-gravity of all the particles in the cloud than maybe other regions. And so it'll gradually pull stuff in and you get those condensations begin to form condensations of mass within the cloud. And then because they're slightly denser than the surrounding regions, they have more gravity, they'll pull in more material. And you start getting a runaway process, a gravitational collapse, which is fine, except there are things that stall that. And one of those things is that is fine if all the particles in the cloud are completely stationary, but they're not. They have warmth. They have temperature. Even if they're only a few degrees above absolute zero, they're still jiggling and moving and vibrating. And that gives them energy that can resist the gravitational collapse. And so, you know, again, slight exaggeration, but if they're all moving around all the time, the hotter they are, the more they're moving. Because, of course, temperature is just a measure of the sort of average kinetic energy of the particles in the cloud. So the hotter clouds, particles are moving more, and they resist the gravitational collapse more. So whether or not a star collapses to form... Uh, sorry, a cloud collapses to form stars depends on this balance between its the gravitational force versus the thermal pressure of the motions. In other words, density versus temperature. So where you're going to form stars preferentially is going to be where it's cold, because they're not moving about so much, and where it's dense, you've got stronger gravity pulling things together. And you have those kind of regions, so that's why it's those cold, dense regions that go on to form the stars. So this also answers the question about why some stars are forming even now. Because if our galaxy is 11 to 12 billion years old, there's gas clouds all around us. Why do they sit there for all this time and only now start to form stars? One of these two things has to change, density versus temperature. It can sit there in an equilibrium state. Maybe it's slightly too sparse, maybe it's slightly too hot to actually go on and contract down to form stars. But if something then just tips it over and changes one of these properties, that's when that'll start. It's difficult to change the temperature of a whole cloud, especially to make it cooler. But you can change the density of a cloud very quickly by just squeezing it. So maybe you have um, a supernova that goes off. And that produces, you know, so this is when a star explodes, it produces a blast wave that compresses the gas in the cloud. Maybe you've got the gravitational pull of another cloud that gets too, too close to it, and that compresses the cloud. And so there are many different ways that you can suddenly get a cloud tipped over into forming stars. And you see this within the disk of our galaxy, where you have vigorous star formation, and remember I said blue stars are the most massive stars, they go through their lifetimes quickly, so they're the younger stars, is in the spiral arms of the disk. And you get these spiral arms not because the blue young stars are the ones that are just rotating around like that. Instead, you've got all the gas in the disk and you have waves of density that come and compress the gas in the disk and then trigger it to form collapses into stars. And so you see these blue star clusters marking where the density wave has moved through the disk. So be clear, these spiral arms are not just due to different rates of rotation of different stars as you go out through the disk. 
If you did that, you'd soon find the the spiral arms would wind up very rapidly. The fact we see them as long-lived structures in almost every spiral galaxy means that they're being continually replenished. The density wave sweeps through the disk and just triggers star formation in its wake. And in terms of what this density wave, what's producing this compression within a galaxy is just where material bunches up, gets close together and gets squeezed. And it's just due to the orbits of gas clouds, perhaps around our galaxy. So, for example, here are some orbits around the centre of the galaxy. Everything is rotating round. We don't necessarily go in nicely circular orbits. You just have the slightest eccentricity, slightly elongated orbits. And as things rotate round at different rates, the axis of these orbits get slightly disturbed or unaligned. You begin very rapidly to get a spiral shape where stuff is bunched up and compressed and it forms very naturally the pattern of the stars we see. So the spiral waves in our galaxy, regions of star formation where you've got this bunching and this star formation triggered. And, of course, one gas cloud doesn't usually just collapse down to form one star. It usually fragments and forms whole pockets of stars. So you have star clusters like this double star cluster in Perseus where all these stars in each of these clouds, each collapse from one giant cloud at about the same time. When you look at a star cluster, most of them, they form from gas of the same chemical composition and they all formed at around the same time. How they differ is in their mass, what mass star forms from each of those fragments. And that then dictates how bright it burns, what its temperature is and the length of its lifetime. And when you see these stars, again in the spiral arms, Star formation is not 100% efficient. You still get the remains of the diffuse gas cloud around the stars that form these nebulae that you see, as in the Rosette Nebula here, being lit up by the light from these stars. So again, if you see the remnants of the gas cloud around it, it again is an indication that they're young stars. And these ones are about 4 million years old in the Rosette Nebula. So different star clusters, they all form at the same time, They have different ages. So here, for example, you have three different star clusters of different ages. This one over here is the oldest. It's lived sufficiently long that many of the stars have gone supernova within it. And I'll talk about what that means. But they've lived their lives and they've reached the end of their lives. You've got other ones that are younger and younger still. And it could be that the supernova explosions producing blast waves that then trigger the formation of subsequent star clusters. So you have one thing triggering another thing triggering another thing, again, just pushing things over into that collapse. But you can see I'm very definite about ageing clusters of stars, and it's very easy to do because you take a picture of them in different colours and you plot out their luminosity versus their temperature. Because when you have... That colour magnitude diagram, where a star is is on it, depends on its age, whether it's still on that main part of main sequence or it moves off to become another kind of star. And it's to do with age. Remember, more massive stars, less massive stars, these have shorter ages and shorter lifetimes than these. So if you start off with a full range of masses all the way up, all the main sequence is distributed... And then after about 10 million years, these move off. They stop being on the main sequence. In fact, as you see, they become supergiants or giants. They disappear. 
if the cluster's about 10 million, 100 million years old, these ones are no longer on the main sequence and they disappear. And so you have a gradual peeling back of the main sequence. So, for example, here's some theoretical colour-magnitude diagrams. Again, colour versus magnitude. This is a really young cluster, about a million years old. But as soon as you get to 10 million years old, the first ones are evolving, developing away from that main sequence and becoming giants. And as we step up the time, you can see there's some peeling back. And if you have a really old system, like some of the globular clusters, you see a very different distribution where this is really just completely peeled back. So we can use the colour magnitude diagram to definitively age stars. So here's a fairly young cluster. This is about 10 million years old. There's just one red giant in its midst. And you can see it's got the four main sequence of stars. Here's another one where there are lots of red giants in their midst. This is probably about 2 billion years old. And you can see it's very different in terms of the colour magnitude distribution. OK, so what's happening on the main sequence? This is when a star has stopped being a protostar and it's doing that nuclear fusion. And nuclear fusion is the way it obtains the energy. And just very briefly, you've got atomic nuclei. They're created of uh, protons and neutrons, and they're surrounded by this cloud of electrons. And different elements have different numbers of protons in the nucleus. Yeah, again, long story short, but basic idea is that. And so what you do in the core of the sun is that you have four protons, and you smash them together through various processes, and you end up with a helium nucleus. Now... This has to happen. You need a lot of energy to get protons to combine to form a helium nucleus. You smash things together at high speed and at high temperature. This will only happen right in the core of the sun where you get in those temperatures well above 10 million degrees. So it doesn't happen throughout the sun, only right at the centre. And how you get the energy out? Well, if you measure the mass of four protons compared to your helium nucleus that they make, you find that there's a difference in mass. It's only about 0.7%. But if that accounts for quite a bit of energy through your mass equivalence relationship, E equals mc squared. And with every one of these collisions, these combinations, you release a bit of energy. And that goes into supplying the sun with that outwards energy that's going to let it shine and counteract, um, counteract the gravitational collapse. And this is going on at prodigious rates at the sun. The sun burn, you know, goes through fuel at you know, billions of kilograms a second. But of course, you know, it's a huge object, so it's got plenty of fuel. And as long as it can do that, it stays in the main sequence. It's turning hydrogen into helium. And as I say, that only happens right in the core. And a star like our sun, it can spend 10, 15 billion years happily turning all that hydrogen into helium right in the core, just where it's hottest. Uh, and the outer envelope, you don't have the nuclear fusion going on. But at some point, after 10, 15 billion years, you run out of sufficient hydrogen at the centre that's hot enough. And you can no longer withstand the gravity. And at that point, the outer layers of the star begin to press in. They squeeze the star and the core gets compressed. It's now mainly inert helium. It gets compressed. It gets heated up. And that heats up another layer outside the core, 
to temperatures such that you can then start burning hydrogen again. And you go through these cycles where you've got the inert helium core surrounded by a shell of hydrogen. And you go through cycles of running that being exhausted, the star shrinking, the star core just outside the core heating up enough that you can regain hydrogen and it's balanced for a while. So you're now moving off the main sequence behavior because the structure of the star begins to change. And this is where it becomes a red giant. Because this helium shell is, it doesn't go all the way through the envelope, but you're directing more energy out into the outer layers of the star. They expand and diffuse away, and you get the red giant. And this is where it becomes enormous. You, you, it gets to the scale of you know, a, a red giant like Betelgeuse. If you plonk it in the center of our solar system, its uh, radius would be out around Jupiter. Again, enormous structures. And this will happen to our sun when it evolves off the main sequence. And if it's a big enough star, a massive enough star, it'll perhaps reach a point where it gets compressed enough in the core, it reaches temperatures of 100 million degrees, and you can start burning helium into things like carbon. But at some point, you know, a star that's maybe up to about 10 times the mass of our sun, you reach a point where it can no longer keep on being compressed such that other nuclear reactions using the products of the previous ones will continue. And then it even then stops being a red giant. You can no longer carry on with the fusion at the core. There are some interesting things that happen while it's a red giant. It's expanded. The outer layers have gone further away from the source of energy, so they're cooler. That's why it's redder. They're also further away from most of the gravity of the star, so they're more loosely bound. So red giants, so again, this is... um, this is going back to Betelgeuse, it's surrounded by clouds of material which are billowing away from the surface because they're only tenuously tied, the outer envelopes of the star are only tenuously tied to it. And even on bigger scales, if we shrink that down, you can begin to see some of the matter that's being just blown away in these stellar winds from Betelgeuse. And this continues, the red giant will eventually lose all of its outer envelope. And it does this when you can no longer produce fusion at the core, no longer produce energy at the core. And at that point, gravity wins and it squeezes the core down. And that collapses down suddenly to form a white dwarf. And the outer layers of the star expand away. There is one thing that happens within the red giant. You can create heavier elements than the carbon or the helium. And you do this by a process of slowly capturing neutrons. So if you've got chemicals or, you know, heavier elements than helium within the envelope of the gas of the star, and that's because they'll have been in the cloud that the star originally collapsed from, it can accrete some neutrons that are produced from the core of the star within the atomic processes. And if you add a neutron, you know, here's your bog-standard element, you add a neutron... After a while, that neutron decays. It's called beta decay to form a proton and an electron. So at the minute, you just increase the number of... um, Well, you've got an atomic number. That's the number of protons. You've increased the mass, but you haven't changed the nature of the element. But once that decays away to form a proton and electron and the electron escapes, you've increased the atomic number of protons within that element, you've changed the element to a new one. And this is a very slow process, but nonetheless, within the envelopes of red giants, you can create some of these heavier elements. 
But then it's going to puff away all the outer layers, and this is when you get these dramatic structures known as planetary nebula. Nothing to do with planets, it just means that when they were first seen, they were kind of disc-liked and had sort of a greenish hue, reminded the Victorian astronomers of the newly discovered planet Uranus. And the centre of the white dwarf, sorry, the centre of the star forms this white dwarf, which is now exposed. And that is held up by electron degeneracy pressure. In other words, stuff is really compressed. If you compress electrons to a certain state, they don't like being squeezed anymore, and they can resist it. And they can resist the gravity of this white dwarf. And it's, again, compressed down, it's heated up, and it's sending out lots of, I mean, it's at temperatures of a few tens of thousands of degrees. It will gradually cool. But for, you know, over a few billion years, it's still going to be hot and radiate. It excites the gas atoms in this envelope of material that's going to expand away over the next few tens of thousands of years. So all the outer layers of the star disappear into space, Often in very dramatic structures, they can form shells. Um, this is the Spirograph Nebula, yeah, different structures. Or you have the Eskimo Nebula, there's his head, there's his Parker hood. Um, so you get winds, you get the Cat's Eye Nebula, where you've got jets and winds. And it's not just one eruption of material from the surface, it's given off different eruptive um, shells, you know, every like 1,500 years. And this one, if you shrink that right down on a much bigger scale, you can see that it's surrounded by a much larger structure and thousands of years before. So red giants go through this process in stages. They puff off material for a while before they finally get rid of it all and collapse down to form the white dwarf. And also, it's worth mentioning that some of that early material that's given off can govern the distribution of the later expanding stuff. So you get these bimodal planetary nebulae. Here's a good example. You've got a disk of dust. That's been given off by the red giant when it's in that Betelgeuse phase. It's kind of losing matter. And then the subsequent outer layers of the star expand away and they're focused in two directions. So you get these fantastic structures from stars like our sun when they reach the end of their lives. Now, of course, if you have a more massive star, it can, uh, it's got... It's got to produce energy faster. And if you've got more mass, it's hotter in the centre, and you can burn hydrogen to helium through a much more efficient process, which uses carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen as, as catalysts. So the net result is you're producing a lot more energy. It's much more efficient. You can hold up the mass of the star, but it goes through its lifetime that much more quickly. Now, you go... At the end of the main sequence, you will go the same thing. It will turn to a red giant and you'll get an inert helium core surrounded by hydrogen shell burning. But of course, because it's got more mass, it'll reach higher temperatures in the core. So helium burning will be commenced to form um, carbon. And then if it's a big enough star, so between 10 and 50 times the mass of the sun, you're going to go through these cycles of compression and heating. And every subsequent um, inert core then is used as fuel for the next set of nuclear reactions, and you're building up subsequently heavier elements in its core. And until if you have a very massive star, it gets to such temperatures at the core that you can actually form silicon to iron. Now, these all happen faster. The processes are gradually less efficient in, in terms of the energy release, so they have to happen a lot faster. And so the lifetimes in each of these phases, it may be you know, 10 million years in the main sequence, hydrogen to helium, but by the time you're turning silicon to iron, it's only about a week doing that. 
And once you get to iron and it's, it's similar compounds, you've got a problem because you, can, you can't get energy by splitting iron. It's the most tightly bound element, nucleus. And at that point, the star can again, it, it may be a supergiant, it may be a giant, it may have all these different shells of different elements burning, but once you hit iron in the core, you cannot get any more energy out and it undergoes the dramatic collapse because it can no longer sustain itself against gravity. Again, the core collapses down. There's more mass, so it goes past that electron degeneracy phase of the white dwarf. It collapses down to form a neutron star where, again, neutrons don't like being squeezed, so they resist the gravitational pull. And the outer layers, I mean, that collapse of the, the iron core down to the neutron star. So you're going from something which is perhaps a few million kilometers across to something that's 10 kilometers across in less than a second. And you're kind of leaving all the outer layers of the stars not knowing quite what's happened. They're sitting there unsupported, and they crash down moments later. They rebound off this incompressible surface of the neutron star and then rebound out into space to form a supernova. So this is the endpoint of a really massive star, like, um, you know, much bigger than our sun. It's going to explode away, form a supernova. This material is going to travel out at, at some thousands of kilometers per second. This is an example, the Crab Nebula, a relatively young one. Some of this material in the outer edges is still expanding away at 1,000 kilometers per second or so. And the core of the star is right down in here. If I zoom in, it's that, and it's a neutron star. And so this is, and you know, again, we, I can't show you a beautiful picture of a neutron star, but here's just like an artist's impression. And this supernova explosion releases a lot of energy. They're so bright, they can outshine the light of the galaxy they sit in. And you've got to realise that light is only one hundredth of all the energy released from the supernova. Most of it comes to us in the form of neutrinos. It's a violent explosion, and the outer layers of the star are ploughed into space in a blast wave and mixed up with the material, the interstellar medium. And of course, being a massive star, it's created a lot of heavier elements at its core, and they get dispersed and recycled into the interstellar medium. Not just that, but it's within the supernova explosion that you create those really heavy elements, because there's a flood of neutrons released. And you have a much rapid, much more rapid process. You can have an element, it requires not just one, but two or three neutrons before they undergo this beta decay, and then these disperse, and you suddenly increase the elements um, by a number of three. And so in the envelope of a red giant star, it's a very slow process. Neutrons are only acquired very kind of slowly, and there's lots of radioactive decay. But in the supernova explosion, you generate all those really heavy elements, the elements that are heavier than lead. And you can plot uh, what you expect the S is the slow, that's the kind of elements, this is neutron number against atomic number, and the, the isotopes you get, and what you get in the supernova explosion, and it accounts for the distribution of elements out there. Okay, so I'm cutting this a little bit short, but you get the idea that you, the massive star explodes away, and you form a neutron star, and if you've got a really, really massive star, something that is like 50 to 100 times the mass of the sun, well, actually, you're producing so much light in, by the red giant phase that it blasts off 
the outer layers of the star. So as it evolves off the main sequence, it never is a red giant because you produce so much energy at the core, the outer layers have been dispersed and these are objects called wolf ray stars. There's the core of the star and it, you just the outer layers are blown away into space and it never undergoes the red giant phase. It never undergoes that shell burning and that affects a lot of the kind of elements that you form within the very massive stars. But they will still go supernova at the end of their lives and disperse what they have created at the core into the stellar medium. So there is this cosmic recycling. These stars generate all the heavy elements in the gas. Most of the interstellar medium is primordial hydrogen and helium formed from the very early universe. But all the heavier elements have all been processed through the core of stars. If you have a nebula and it collapses down to form stars, well, obviously, you get some the ones that never quite become stars. Those are the brown dwarfs. Those are things less than the tenth the mass of the sun. You might get solar mass stars, which evolve to form red giants, go through planetary, or, and also planets around the stars, of course. And they will go to form planetary nebulas. You get the very... Uh, and white dwarfs. Then you get the very massive stars. They'll form the supergiants, and these are the ones that'll go supernova and form a neutron star or even a black hole if it's one of those really massive stars. And all of these processes recycle those elements into the interstellar medium. You've got winds from the giants and the red giants. They puff off those outer layers. You've got the planetary nebulae that expand away after the red giant phase. Now, there's a fairly gentle mixing, and they're not so enriched in the heavy elements. The dramatic one, of course, is the supernova. You've got lots of heavy elements, and it's thrown off with great energy, so they're very violently mixed into the interstellar medium. So this is a very effective return of material. But you've got to remember, big luminous stars are rare. Only about 5% of all the stars that have ever been formed have actually gone through the supernova phase. So it's not, you know, it's not the case that there's a lot of the heavy elements being recycled into the interstellar medium. It's still just a trace of those heavy elements visible. And the other thing, of course, is that although you have this recycling, some of these chemicals are locked away to form what one of my colleagues calls the cosmic ash heap. Because if you've got your neutron star or your black hole or your planets, or your brown dwarfs, or your white dwarfs. They're all inert, compact objects. They're just going to cool and dim with time. And those, a lot of those heavy elements are still locked in those bodies. So the recycling, perhaps, is not as efficient as one might think. And so it's still, even though you can map generations of stars that are forming from progressively enriched stars, so that, um, the, sorry, progressively enriched clouds, so that more recent stars form from more enriched clouds because there's been time for various generations of massive star formation. This is a slow process, but it's one where you can actually see generations of stars being formed where their chemical composition is changing. And the exciting thing, of course, is that allows you to date different stages of formation within a galaxy and start to look at galaxy formation processes more or less by doing stellar archaeology and looking at the chemical composition of those stars. So that's it's obviously a lot more to do with stellar lives, but that's just kind of like your potted history, and I hope it gives you a flavour of our galaxy as a very dynamic medium. Uh, my next lecture will be the other extreme, no longer looking at the universe around us, but looking at the very earliest light of the universe. So 
Join me in March for Echoes of the Big Bang. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.